Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. Hi, Ann Friedman. Hello. As we have discussed, our brains have completely run dry as we put all of our ideas into this book. <laughs> right, 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 right. But the great thing is that we asked for some questions from the listeners, and in true, like, great CYG listener fashion, they delivered big time. Y'all are the best. Okay, let's play the first question. Hi. My name is Sarah. I'm calling from Denver. I'm not a millennial. I'm 41. I just left an AA meeting. I went to AA a year ago. I went to AA 20 years ago. I think talking about drinking, and I just finished Carolyn Knapp's drinking a love affair or something like that and it's so my life and how you can cross over an invisible line from being a drinker heavy drinker into actual alcoholism and what that means what are the signs and what should we be looking for and this fucking gets women ladies and um it gets us and i love <laughs> Rose and Kim Crawford's Avenue Blanc and um was not someone who drank in the mornings, but it, it fucking got me. That's what I think we need to be fucking talking about. How does that sort of fall in line with self care, self compassion, um, you know, all the things that we're trying to nip in the bud um as kind of useful and young as possible. Right, right, right. Bye. This is something that we, I don't think we've ever devoted like a full episode to, but it's definitely something that we have talked about here and there, correct? It is. And we, we certainly have for a long time, like every time we have an annual retreat, we make this big list of topics that we really want to devote episodes to. And we get to maybe a quarter of those ideas. And I think that drinking and drinking culture and sobriety and staying sober, all of that stuff has, has long shown up on that list. And we... You know, so we're very interested. We just have not gotten to it for a full episode yet. Yeah. Talking about alcoholism and drinking culture generally is like very important. And talking about it specifically as it relates to people who identify as women is also really important because it presents differently. Right. And so you had noted before our call, for example, that we used to, you know, we used to be really big on the show about uh, drinking while we recorded and, Back before we uh, were professionals like we are today. Right. <laughs> now I know that that sound and, you know, like uh, having my equipment near wine, probably not a great idea. But, um, you know, we definitely like drink wine when we do um, our live shows. And it's part of like the shtick of the whole thing. 
I think that for me personally, a couple of things have happened. I've gotten older, so like drinking, drinking in social settings, not as exciting as it used to be because it it does involve like leaving the house, which uh, that's a huge barrier for me. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) LOL. But I also think that like, you know, like I went at least to a college that had like a very huge culture of just like very performative drinking which I think is probably most universities. And then I got older and things change. I do enjoy like a drink at home or whatever. But another thing that has happened is that um, as I've gotten older, a lot of my friends have gone into recovery programs. And that has been like a very eye-opening experience for me because I realized that I just didn't know anything really about alcoholism beyond like some people have it and some people don't. And I think that like watching people that you are very close to deal with it it's uh wow i can't believe i was gonna use the word sobering bad pun (laughs) um it's just you know eye-opening is the word that i'm going to use because i realized that you know the conditions for me to be somebody with a problem with alcohol are there it's just that my um genetically it's not an issue that i have to deal with like sometimes like that's really the difference it's like oh it's not that i'm a healthy drinker it's just truly that um my genetic makeup makes it so that I don't have to deal with this. That was also something that I really had to have like a huge reckoning with. And I also just like realized that there is something in our culture where so much, so many of our our activities are just like tied up around drinking in order to, to have fun with your coworkers. We go to happy hour. When you go on a date, you go to a bar. So much of life is just like structured around booze in ways that sometimes like don't make sense. That's just something that like for me personally, I've, I've really been trying to deal with where, so it's like one half of it is how can I be, how can I be a better friend to my friends who are in recovery? But also another part of it is truly just why am I around so much booze all the time? Because I don't feel like drinking all of the time. It's hard. It is like very, it's a thing that if you had told me at 23, I would have rolled my eyes about and a decade plus later, I am really confronted with the fact that I'm surrounded by alcohol and I'm somebody who, like, socially, I don't drink that much anymore. It's interesting that this listener mentions Caroline Knapp's best-selling book, Drinking a Love Story, because women in particular who I know who have decided to stop drinking have cited that book a lot as something that was key to a shift in their thinking. It's hard to separate for me sometimes a lot of... What is aging? What is personal preference? What is like shifts in my social milieu? Like that sort of thing. But I really like, you know, at the end of the day, being able to ask the question of like, what is the effect this is really having on my life? How is this making me feel? When am I deciding I want a drink? Because I think like for me, that's one of those things where I actually don't feel amazing if I want to drink because I've had a hard day, for example, you know, like, like, or like, oh, this is because something really difficult's happening and I essentially want to numb out. I want to drink because it seems like it would taste delicious or because I am really loving some camaraderie, ritualistic, warm, posy feelings like that feels different to me, too. And so I think like some of what books like this are designed to do is help you pick apart what is something you've just been conditioned to do? Like when I go out with my friends, we drink, for example, versus like, what do you really want to be doing? And what is it really bringing to your life, your pleasure, your social circle? A couple of years ago, there was this viral article that Quartz published about women and patriarchy and drinking. And um, let me see if I can find a paragraph to summarize 
Uh, there's no easy way to be a woman because, as you may have noticed, there's no acceptable way to be a woman. And if there's no acceptable way to be the thing you are, then maybe you drink a little or a lot. So the thesis of this article is basically like, it is really difficult to forge an identity and live a fully realized life as a woman in a patriarchal society. And drinking what? is a coping mechanism slash like drinking to excess is something that happens because like women are alienated in this particular way. Like that is sort of my high level summary of this essay, which we will link to. I am sort of like literally like women are trying to cope with living under patriarchy is like you could you could apply that to any negative behavior or like anything that's bad for you in the world. I mean, part of me is like, sure, I'm sure this plays into it with, for some for some women or like it's like some kind of factor. But it's I mean, it's just like, how would you tell? You know what I mean? Like, how do you know what is a result of living under patriarchy and what is genetic and what is your particular friend group? I mean, th these threads are impossible to separate in my mind. Right. You know, I just think that it's always interesting that women's drinking gets scrutinized in a very specific kind of way. Like I remember it was years ago. There were, I think it was a New Republic article. Hold on. I might be lying. No, it was a Wall Street Journal article called The New Face of Risky Drinking is Female. There are always all these debates and they per they always like, you know, they percolate around campus sexual assault, for example, about the role of women drinking and how that, you know, it creates like conditions for assault, essentially, which is something that is really it's like a very infuriating kind of trend piece to write because campus drinking is a problem for all students. It's not a particular problem that only affects women. And yet, like, here is patriarchy trying to tell women that, like, their drinking is, is like, a factor in why they are at risk for being assaulted on college campuses. That is a harmful statement, and it's also ludicrous, and it's very infuriating. And so when I think about, like, the ways that we just talk about the ways that we talk about alcohol and women just like they just to me like that's actually what creates like ripe conditions for women to feel shame about not talking about how drinking is affecting them whether it's the question of like hey like i can't quite interrogate why i have a drink in my hand is it that i actually want to or is it that like pressures of patriarchy or you know is it that i'm conditioned this way or you know i like i went through a phase where i i realized that most of my drinking was at home I was like very much Olivia Poping at like I would come home <laughs> hard day no like truly like I would yeah, come yeah. home like very hard day of work and it's when I started becoming a manager and so it meant that like you know what managing is right it's like you coach everybody all day and then you go home and you have to do your own fucking work now and so I would come home and I didn't I like couldn't leave the house and I had all this work to do and I would just drink wine like at my computer working all the time and that's the thing that like in TV is very much like look at this fancy thing and then I realized that I was actually taking out my recycling like really late at night because I didn't want my neighbors to see how much wine like one person was consuming. And it took me months to like admit that to myself. I was like, oh, I am like forever doing like two bottles a night. Like, why am I doing this? I never got wasted at home. I like woke up fine, you know, like tolerance levels like popping. But still, I was like, why am I, why am I so ashamed about this? And that took me months to like really come to terms with myself. And so whenever I see that on TV, it really drives me crazy. Um, even though Olivia Pope's like stemware is gorgeous. It is truly like 
That so is your stemware, TBH. Having <sighs> sipped from your glassware, it is very gorgeous as well. <laughs> Thank you, Anne. Thank you. I'm glad that everybody now knows that Olivia Pope is imitating me. I'm the real inspiration <laughs> for Olivia Pope. But, you know, it's like I just think about all these things where because we don't create conditions where you can just talk about it you carry a lot of this like weirdo baggage. The other like the other side of the alcohol conversation too is that it's very limiting in scope. So whenever people are like, ugh, like women and alcohol, I was like, women aren't the only people who want to curb their alcohol drinking. Like some religious people do not drink. Some people don't drink because they're expecting children. Some people don't drink for medical reasons. Some people don't, you know, like there's so much... Some people just don't like it. <laughs> right. Some people just don't yeah. like it. It's not like you have to have a problem with booze to not drink booze. And yet we have like created a culture where drinking alcohol is a like it's a norm that if you don't adhere to like something must be wrong with you. For me, at least like that's how I, I like to think about it. Well, it really costs me nothing to accommodate people who do not drink. And also I would like to be creative enough in my activities that they do not have to all revolve around booze. I was just about to say that like, I, I actually think that I still derive a lot of pleasure ov- from like meeting someone for a drink. And I derive a lot of pleasure from like the occasional like drink at my house alone as well. Like I would not fully identify as Olivia poping it. But I think for me, just like having a broader sphere of options for myself and with friends is like where I've really settled at. So like, you know, if you're, you know, in an exchange about making plans to do something, offering like one or two options out of three that like don't involve drinking. And then like, you know, the other person doesn't have to be like, no, I don't want to meet for a drink because X, Y, Z, like you don't know what's going on with them. Like they can just choose the non-drinking option. And like, I am always fine with that too. You know, like if someone is my friend, I can definitely hang out with them sober because like the presumption is I like their company. And I think like that's part of it too is like, oh, if I have to be drinking with this person, does that mean I really like them enough to like be hanging out with them? And the answer is like, no. Like if you need booze to like lubricate a friendship, it's like, mm, I don't know. Like consider the friendship. Judge Amina says, next case. (laughs) Gavel bang. (laughs) Bang. (laughs) Okay, let's take a little break and then we'll listen to the next voicemail. Let's listen to the next voicemail. Hi, Team CYG. This is Beth Pickens, long time, first time. And I have a question for Anne and Amina and everybody behind the scenes for a potential future episode. And that is, um, so a thing I love about Call Your Girlfriend is I get a lot of information about people and experiences and ideas, a lot of critical thinking, and tips for living, which I really appreciate. Tips for money management, business, friendship, travel, work. I love that stuff. So a question I have for an upcoming episode is, can you all think of, like, some of your favorite tips for any part of living? Like, what's really working for you now? What have you learned recently? Or what have people told you, hey, that's really smart, you do that thing? I've gotten so many of those from CYG, and I'd love to know more. Thank you. Ugh, Beth Pickens. Beth Pickens. Love this lady. I also love the emotional low stakes of this question. Thank you, Beth, for hearing the subtext of our of our call for prompts and questions. Do you have a top life hack that you want to share? I have many life hacks, but they're all very specific to me. One that is like making my life very happy right now 
and this is not an ad at all. And I'm sure that there are many services who do something like this, but I've been using this app called Digit. It examines the way that you spend money in your bank account, and then it just like helps you put a couple of dollars away every day. You know, it's like money that you won't miss. They're usually like, well, if you spend like $25 every day, the day that you spend like $16, they'll put the $9, like they'll suck it away for you. The reason that I love this is because you know how I feel. I, I feel about automation. When it's replacing jobs, I don't like it. But when it's replacing tasks that I have to do myself manually, I love it. This is how I've been able to go on vacation basically the last like two years where I just look at this like weirdo rainy rainy day bank account and it's not parts of like my regular savings or parts of like how I do retirement or whatever it's just like this is truly what my play money is and every year I've been able to go like on like one really nice vacation from this thing that the computer does for me so that makes me like really happy I love that I think I signed up for digit but I was intimidated by the automation aspect of it I was like oh I can handle telling an app to sock away a dollar a day for me or whatever. But I am like scared to have it analyze my bank account. And also like my spending is spread across like different accounts and credit cards. And I was just like, I don't know. I downloaded it and then got scared and never used it. That was my This is why I'm telling you that this is not an ad. I'm pretty sure there are many apps that do something like this. And also uh, from a privacy standpoint, uh, it's probably not great to give like an app access to your bank account. But right. I just use I just use the account that I do most of my like everyday spending on. And then uh, it's fine. Got it. OK, well, let me tell you what's like been a life changing thing for me lately is actually using the um, screen time settings on my iPhone, which allow you to set like, you know, you can essentially group apps together. So like, you know, whatever, whatever apps are your vice, you can group them together and then declare a daily maximum number of minutes or hours. And so I have Twitter and Instagram grouped together. And I'm like, I want an hour max across both of these apps every day. And the great thing is like Instagram also has an in-app one that will tell you you've been on this app for 30 minutes or whatever. But the iPhone settings like screen time thing will once you've hit an hour just fully white out the screen and say you've reached the limit and then every time you try to go reopen the app which like you know I'm like hitting that hamster feed me pellet button (laughs) so often every time I go to click it it's grayed out with a little timer next to it so I know I've already hit my limit and it actually is very effective for me in like not letting me go back in after I've spent my hour and I think that like that also when the thing pops up, sometimes I really realize like what I'm actually doing. I'll be like, I am I am doing what on this app? Like how many like clicks deep am I on something I don't even care about? And so that's the other thing I really enjoy about it. It's not like a little pop up notification, like the whole screen whites out and interrupts your whatever like cycle is happening in my brain. And I appreciate it greatly. So God bless if you have an Android. Good luck. I will link to the iPhone one. <laughs> It has changed my life. What's another good life hack? Uh, obviously, doing uh, getting a library card so you can listen to free audiobooks. That's my number one way that I've saved money. Like Libby! <laughs> Libby app forever. Um, another good life hack is you should always kind of shake the ATM card slot before you put in your money so that you know uh, the credit card machine is not like it's not a skimmer. That's Wait, a thing what? That, what? That's a thing that a banker friend told me and it's been amazing. Do you Wait, not do this? I don't know what you're talking about. So a lot of like ATM machines are really shady. Before you blindly put your card into the ATM card, you should just like shake it to see the reader to see that there's not a credit card machine skimmer on it. Whoa. 
do that one. And you know my favorite money-saving life hack that I only do at LAX because I think LAX is the airport that I go to that frustrates me the most, weirdly, is how I refuse to call, like, an Uber or take a cab from the airport. I just, like, hop on one of the... Because it's always... For some reason, I notice how expensive it is in L.A., but I always take one of the hotel buses to a nearby hotel and then call the car from there. And I love it's that. always been like, that's like been a savings and like order of magnitudes of like many, many dollars. So it's probably low key inconvenient, but it's my favorite thing that I do at LAX. Okay. What else do I have? My, my list is like a thing I've done for a long time that really, that really helps me with as an extrovert who wants to do all of the things with all of the people all of the time. I have one or two nights per week on my calendar where I'm just holding them. Like I'm not allowed to schedule something social on top of it. And that way, essentially I protect it. So I don't get to the end of the week and I'm like doing way too many things. And like, I'm allowed to move them. Like, you know, it it recurs on the same date every week, but I can, you know, if I want to make plans on that Thursday, I can move it to my whole date, my stay at home night to Monday. The point is making sure I'm getting the time that I also need in my home. And that's like one of those things that's like, it's not an app. It's not, it's not really like that much of a trick, but like for me, my whole brain lives in my schedule. And so protecting things that I want to protect using the schedule as a tool is like generally something I have gotten more and more dependent on. Perfect. And I have one last little one for, and this is like a extremely non-digital, like, you know, I am someone who loves snail mail and like written correspondence and honestly, just keeping a Google spreadsheet of my friends' mailing addresses. So like if they send you that wedding invitation or like that thank you card or whatever, making note of their physical address so that like I have one place to go and look to send them something is something I love. Like the digital address book that's like, I mean, it's just a spreadsheet. It's low tech, but I find that to be really great. And then you don't have to like always send the email to friends that's like, what's your address when you actually want to do something nice or send something. And it really comes in handy when friends are going through something difficult, like, you know, if someone close to them dies or if they have a health issue, you don't have to bug them and be like, where do I send you a thing that I'm supposed to, that I'm trying to show you support and solidarity with? You can just have the address set up and send it. That is my like old fashioned Miss Manners (laughs) correspondence advice. Put it in a Google Doc. Did you know that fashion is the second most polluting industry in the world? Uh, That's why those of us at CYG love shopping secondhand, and we love shopping at ThreadUp. They add over 50,000 new items every day at unbeatable prices. So it's basically the psychic experience of a thrift store where you are like finding total gems and not spending that much cash, but you get to do it from the comfort of your couch. I'm someone who loves to double screen, like looking at clothes online while I'm also half watching a television show. And ThreadUp is perfect for that. It's great. I also love the idea, too, that it is like essentially recycling while not compromising at all on quality. ThreadUp is offering Call Your Girlfriend listeners a limited time special offer for an extra 30% off your first order. Visit threadup.com slash girlfriend. That's T-H-R-E-D-U-P dot com slash girlfriend for 30% off your first order. There's no A in there. Threadup.com slash girlfriend for an extra 30% off today. Terms apply. 
Let's take another question. Hi, my name is Jessica, and I live in Las Vegas, Nevada. I am calling with a question for Anne and Aminatu. I would love to hear their thoughts on the accessibility and affordability of therapy, whether it's for depression or personal issues, just what they think about that. Thank you. Oh, man. Um... This question, definitely near and dear to my heart. And uh, I think that I can speak for both of us when I say that our thoughts about um, accessibility and affordability for therapy is that, yes, therapy should be more accessible, in fact, to everyone. And it should be more affordable. If you've even, like, started the process of looking for this kind of help, you know how overwhelming it is. So that's the, like, top level, like, yes, somebody should run for president and make, like, mental health affordability and accessibility, like, uh, like a big platform. Oh, the free um, therapy ticket. I would vote for that so fast. I, I would vote for free therapy ticket. Oh, my God. It's, it's very, very necessary. Because the thing is that, like, most people start looking for, like, therapy and counseling when they're going through something, like, very, very big. And, like, any kind of doctor... When you're looking for a specialist, when you're going through it is the time where you're uh, you're not super excited to do that. Right. When you have like the, the lowest level like of I mean, speaking for myself, like capability or bandwidth to be doing that is like is when the exact point in time where you're like, oh, I wish I had done this a year ago or two years ago. Right. And so like, you know, just to say like we are not doctors here. So um, we don't have like specific advice about how you can find the right kind of therapist for the treatment that you need to be in and how long your treatment is or whatever. But generally, um, for me, as somebody who interfaces a lot with these kinds of counseling services, I will say that there are a couple of things that you can do to figure it out. And you should probably try to do them when you have some time, aka when you're not in crisis. So the first thing that I would say is that if you have health insurance, if you're one of those lucky people who has health insurance, you should find out from your health insurance what your options are. Because even some like very shitty insurance plans have a couple of options for people that you can talk to. And you should like have that list on you. So if you have health insurance, some of these places like your copay will take care of it, for example. The other thing that I will say is that if you find a therapist, even if they're not in your network or you don't have insurance or whatever, you should just like straight up ask them if they have a sliding scale. So a sliding scale therapist are basically, you know, they're like psychologists or social workers who they will adjust their hourly fee to make the therapy more affordable to you. So um, that's something that's always available to you and you should 100% ask for it. And there are like a ton of, not a ton, but there are some directories where you can find this stuff out. So like I think Psychology Today has one and goodtherapy.org are like two online that people talk about. But I also say, I also think that um, this is where like the friend network really comes into play. Yes. And this is why um, not having shame about talking about therapy is so important. Uh, is that, you know, the probably the best therapy recs that you will get will come from your own network, not from some like, you know, like therapy magazine on the internet. So that's something to like think about. There are also some, uh, believe it or not, free or low income mental health services. And uh, those are usually like community clinics. And, uh, you know, and they're also like mental health professionals who just offer a bunch of services. So I think 
I know that you could definitely, uh, in the Obama era, go to mentalhealth.gov and the National Alliance on Mental Illness uh, NAMI are also places that you can look at to like find for this kind of stuff in your community. Uh, there are also like therapy apps. I have personally not used one, so I cannot speak to them, but I know that for some people it's really th like that's a lifeline that they have that wouldn't be available to them otherwise. And there are also like um, there are crisis and suicide prevention hotlines, right, that you can also avail yourself of depending on what your crisis is. So all of this to say that there is not like one great solution, but I will say that probably um, being a little vulnerable and talking to your friends about it is super important because I guarantee you that you know someone who goes to therapy or someone who knows someone who goes to therapy and uh, one of those people will have the key for what is the best way to figure it out so this isn't to punt and say like personal responsibility over um you know the fact that our healthcare system is really shitty but i think that generally you don't know what your options are or whether therapy is affordable to you or not if you don't actually look into it so you should probably look into it yeah and i think also i mean this is essentially what you're saying is like yes sometimes it is inaccessible and inaffordable but also sometimes accessibility or affordability is like an excuse to not pursue it or like a, a way to kind of say I'm not going to like take charge of this part part of my life because I feel stretched financially already and the answer is like it is expensive and also it's something that like there are options if you um if you want to prioritize this so it's like asking the, that question of like how much is this based on information I have about the options available to me and how much of it is me kicking this difficult task down the road a little bit further? I think like that's the real talk difficult question. Next question. <laughs> Moving on. Check, check, check. I love that we are definitively solving everyone's problems. Yes, I that's, always us. Feel so, that's us solving problems. I always feel so sheepish about these mailbag episodes for that reason. Just like, oh, <laughs> I'm more. Yeah, I'm always like my life is on fire. I'm not here to give anybody advice. That's crazy. That's why I was. I'm just generally more comfortable thinking about these as like prompts of stuff to talk about rather than questions that we are definitively answering because I'm just like, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, are, I don't yeah. know anything. Oof. Exactly. Um, okay, like that said, let's listen to one more voicemail. Hi, this is Allie. I'm calling from Columbus, Ohio. Post, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, Christine Blasey Ford things. When that first happened, I just didn't want to talk to any any guys, friends, romantic interests, or otherwise. So um, I feel like I need to have more conversations about how to get over that and become friends with men again and not be so annoyed with them all the time and try to forgive them because um, they are, you know, 50% of the population. Thanks. Okay, wow. I think we almost never talk about men. <laughs> and and rightfully so. I mean, I what I think is interesting about this is it doesn't feel like a new question post me too or like post Kavanaugh hearings or anything like that. I just feel like there are always going to be things that like maybe make me feel distant from or like not fully seen by some of the men in my life. And especially in the past few years, there have been some, 
I don't know, like more prominent or extreme things in the news that have like forced some of those divides out into the open in terms of conversations with friends. For me, one of the big questions I ask myself is not like, do these men in my life fully like understand and appreciate every aspect of my experience as a woman and more like, are they willing to be in conversation with me about it? And I I don't think that means that I am always like there to help edify them about my experience in the world. But it is very important to me that if we experience something differently or we are reacting differently to something in the news or if something dramatic happened like you know, IRL in our friend group and it bothered me, but it didn't seem to bother them that I feel like my friendship with them is a space where I can mention that and we can talk about it. And it's not just something that I hold on my own and feel like maybe it wasn't that big of a deal. Like for me, that's the bar. The bar is not like expecting that men are going to get it all the time. The bar is, can I talk about it if I feel like I want to with them and does that conversation feel productive how are they engaging with me like that is like for me one baseline way of thinking about these divides I don't know how do you approach your friendships with men when it comes to like this kind of shared experience or like non-shared experience divide I think generally I approach my friendships with men the same way that I approach my friendships with uh, people who are not people of color in that, um, yes, like those friendships do happen and some of them are really meaningful to me. I refuse to center my experience around like their identity. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, because when I hear questions like this, a lot of times like all, and it's interesting, it's like I always hear questions like this from women. Like I don't, I don't have an experience of, you know, reading something like really deep or or hearing from hearing from men TM in general that, you know, they're like, oh, in this post-Me Too world, does anybody want to be my friend? Like, like, I'm not really hearing that kind of introspection from from the men in general. So I think that my approach to it is that, like, you know, my experience is not here to be, like, an aha moment or a teacher to anyone. I think about my relationships with men specifically as the relationships with men that I already know, not, like, men in general. Right, specific men, not like men TM. Right, yeah. Right, it's not like men. Like I don't care about men TM, but I don't care about a <laughs> lot of. But I don't care about a lot of people TM. You know what right. I mean? Like I don't think. Uh, like, yeah, I was like, that's not my. That's not my responsibility or my job. But I think that like for the men that are in my life that I actually consider friends or family or more than friends they're the ones that have like huge bars to clear right i was like well like it's just like you approach every other friendship i was like can we be fully um can we be like fully realized in this relationship or like can we talk about things that are hard and things that are not hard you know and also like does the friendship like fully like does it just revolve around you or like a part of your identity and if the answer is yes then um it's probably not a real friendship the the dudes in my life like i'm generally happy i am happy about how we talk about these things but um yeah like do better all the time yeah and it's i think it's interesting that this question um comes with this implication that there is inherent value to having men in your life right like there's this sort of like i need to get over all these feelings i'm having about men tm in order to have healthier relationships with the men in my life and like my feeling about that is if the feeling is obligation like what does that say about the men who are already in your life like if you're feeling like oh god like i've really gotta steal myself to work really hard to be in this friendship like what you what you say is so true in terms of centering it's like how are you both 
showing up equally? And how does that look differently for them than it does for you? Um, And it's probably going to look differently, right? It's not like they get to just ignore the fact that you might be feeling not super excited about spending time with men when all you do is read articles about the bad shit men have done. It might be on them to say like, oh, like, let's talk about this or like initiate a conversation about how they are also thinking about these issues. Because, you know, for me, like that is a bar. I want to know that the things that are important to me, like with most friends are also like on a core level, something that they're thinking about or that is important to them. And if it's not, which is like, fine, that doesn't mean that person has to be centered in my life at that moment either. I mean, that's the other thing I think about this um, framing of obligation in the question is like, honestly, it's okay based on something that you were feeling or going through to not invest as much in your friendships with men during that period. And if they notice your absence and want to raise it with you and are able to handle a real conversation about it, like then you get to make the next choice. But I don't think that there's some inherent reason that you need to prioritize their feelings or prioritize those friendships that if, if they are not already there and not already feeding you, like the objective good of like get some men in your life is, <laughs> I don't really yeah, see that, it. And that is not, that is not advice I would give anyone. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I think that like, I'm just reacting almost like tonally to that sense of, you know, they're 50% of the population. I should probably make sure that they're integrated in my life in frankly, like intimate ways. Right. Or like that they are close to me. And I'm just like, you know, if that's the feeling, it's like we all, But that's also my point of like, are they, um, are they asking themselves that? Exactly. And if not, mm, like, you know, and also like, why are you asking yourself that? And I think that that is like some very deep, like lady gendered stuff. And even like the frame around Me Too, like I know that Me Too is like a huge, big, um, explosive conversation that we're having. But um, I would say, and I'm not saying this to be flippant, but I would say that like a lot of women, uh, if not like most women, know about, um, you know, the issue of like sexual violence outside of Me Too. Like Me Too is not how like we like that's that was not like a ding, 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 like welcome to like men and women. Uh, right. If know, anything, like, we're surprised. Different. Right. We're, if anything, like, we're surprised uh, some men are actually paying attention to it at this point. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I was like that, like the conversation of me too, for me, honestly, is a conversation about scale. It's not a conversation about discovering something for the first time. Right. And it, and not even just about scale. It's a conversation where it's like, oh, this is the first time that all, it, all Me Too really is, is other women whispering to other women that the same thing happened to them. It's not some sort of like witchcraft convention that we're having where we're making Well, it's to, also like, headlines taking that seriously. It's like, it's external right. source, like sources taking that seriously too. I would say that like the reason that that feels different to me and it's the reason that I brought up like having friends of other races is that like that's a dynamic that I feel very acutely in, I would say like in the last couple of years of, you know, police violence against black people being in the headlines and really feeling for my white friends that yes, like probably they're discovering something for the first time or here is a news thing that, um, you know, is like dominating a lot of conversations that your other friends are having. But again, it's like you don't get to be a center of that part of the conversation and you're realizing that something is different for you also doesn't get to be like the center of the conversation. Yeah. And it's interesting hearing you talk about that parallel too, because one thing I think about when it comes to like men and me too, is I'm just like, you can take all of your status updates and like, you know, shelve them because I actually, I don't care a ton about what you're saying publicly about like what needs to happen and things like that. Like the way that you show me that like you are a man who's worthy of my 
attention and friendship is that like I can feel some level of confidence that these are issues that you are engaging in when I'm not present, that there are things that you care about when I'm not forcing the issue or when the headlines aren't forcing the issue and feeling some degree of security about that for me at least, only comes from things I pick up on in the conversations that we have together about this stuff. Because the thing is, if you're actually thinking about this, being able to say like, ugh, like listen to this conversation I had with three other men at work this week that relates to this or whatever, like because that is front of mind for you and you just want to talk about it, like to me, I have more confidence then that like, oh, I can come to you with my feelings about something fucked up happening in my own workplace or in my own career because I can see that this is something you care about when I'm not waving it in front of your face. And it's just like, it's a very hard thing to articulate that sense of where do I feel comfortable or like what bar has been met. And I think it's like different for everyone. But I also think that like, that is the price of intimacy, being able to sort of assure the person when there is this like external structural privilege differential that you are aware of that and you are thinking about it and you are um, centering the experience of your friend. Well said. All right. um, I want to thank everyone who sent in questions and prompts. And if you want to send one for an upcoming mailbag episode, because let's be real, we will probably need to do this again as our as our book brains fail to come up with, <laughs> with episode topics on our own. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Yes. You can find us so many places on the internet. Callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it. Wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. You can subscribe, leave us a rating or a review, and tell all your friends. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. Sophie Carter Khan runs our social accounts. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our logos are by Kenesha Sneed. And this podcast is produced by the amazing Gina Delvac. I'll see you inside the Google Doc. (laughs) See you in the Google Doc. (laughs) Bye, boo-boo. Bye.